This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I want you to imagine you just won the mega jackpot in the lottery, and you'll take home $100 billion. And rather than buying a social media company, you decide to try and make the world a better place. You make the decision that you want to be the man who ends poverty in Africa. So you put out the call and you hire a team of Africa experts to meet you in your office and tell you where to spend the money. So you sit down at the table surrounded by all these experts. You open up your bank account with $100 billion and you ask, where should I be spending my money? And that's where the problems start. Because you can't just give everybody on the continent an equal share. That would be around $80 each and it'd be gone within a few weeks. Not a particularly good use of your money. So obviously the whole continent too difficult. So let's start simple. What about mosquito nets? They save millions of lives. Why don't we invest in those? And your first advisor turns to you and says, yeah, they do save millions of lives, but he also tells you that due to the desperate financial situations in some of these places, people are choosing to put the mosquito nets over their livestock rather than their families, as their entire family relies on the health of that livestock to be able to plow the crops. And the more mosquito nets you send in, the more that are going to end up over the top of livestock. So you think to yourself, no problem, we'll just build up the economies in these areas. So you ask your advisors, so why don't I just give out heaps of small business grants? Help them get their businesses off the ground. That way they can start their farms and repair shops and get some money so they don't have to put the mosquito nets over their livestock. Another one of your advisors chimes in, tells you that a lot of these areas don't have the road infrastructure in place at the moment. So even if these farmers were to expand their crops, they can't get their produce to the markets 100 miles away before it simply rots in the trailer. Okay, fine then. Well, why don't we just build roads? That way they can get stuff to market. And once again, an advisor chimes in, asking who's going to maintain those roads? When potholes begin to inevitably appear, who's paying to fix that? Because a lot of the central governments don't have the money for that. And if the roads just fill with potholes, it will likely destroy many of the cars going down these roads that these people rely on. So you say, look, I'll commit to fixing the potholes. To which one of your advisors then ask, well, who's going to build the road? If we want really good workers building roads into the remote jungle, we'll either have to mosquito-proof everything or pay exorbitant fees for equipment. And because of this infrastructure within this region, it's almost certainly going to be rife with corruption. So a lot of the money you intend on being used to build infrastructure in this region is just going to end up in the pockets of a few elites. <sighs> Fine. What if we just focus on paying for everyone's school and food? There can't be anything wrong with that, surely. Another advisor pops in. Well, for one, to get people and trainers out there is pretty tricky and often requires specialty training and specialty trainers. And two, for some of these countries, their school, hospitals, roads, and food is a big part of their annual budget. And if you offer to pay for that tomorrow, you've just freed up 30 to 40% of the national budget overnight, which, depending on how transparent the leadership is within the country, may just become a slush fund these leaders use to buy weapons and mansions that they'll likely turn on the population later on. So by you funding these schools, you may have just fueled the next war. Okay, let's think bigger then. What if I was to use the money to lobby foreign companies to move their manufacturing from China and into countries like Kenya or Ghana? Make Africa the next China. That way there's economies and there's infrastructure and people have jobs. To which one of your economists then says, the trouble is that you'll still be undercut on price by China because of China's proximity to the main markets in East Asia and their ease of transport. 
meaning that you, the donor, would either have to keep dumping your money into these private companies to subsidize their goods, making them cheap enough to compete with China, or no one's going to buy your products because they're more expensive than what China's putting out. Which if you go down that road, will mean your entire cash sum will just go towards supporting a few large companies. You sigh again. Okay, let's think more. What if I pick just one country, the poorest country, little landlocked Burundi, and make that my pet project? That way we can keep our eye on everything, and we can run things, and we have free reign. We have $100 billion, which is a huge amount of money for Burundi. Surely, that amount of money in that concentrated a space, we can really make some difference. And right on cue, your advisor chimes back in. Well, yes, this sudden cash injection will make everyone richer, but it's also likely to cause massive inflation throughout the country. And with everyone all of a sudden having more money, the people that sell the basic goods are almost certainly going to jack up the price. Which doesn't matter because the people have money and are willing to pay for it. And in the short term, the country temporarily raises its standard of living, as the consumers have more money to spend and the shops are earning record profits. But after receiving the news of wages jumping so high and record profits throughout the country, workers from neighboring states are almost certainly going to start pouring in knowing they can sell hamburgers in their home country for a dollar a day, or they can move to the new prosperous Burundi and sell them for $5 a day. Now there's a huge influx of people into Burundi, and because Burundi's economy is not developed enough to handle this, it will almost certainly cause shortages of food, housing, and other goods. And with so many people competing for these items, it'll push the landowners and shopkeepers to raise their prices even higher. But this cash injection you put into the area was temporary, and the money will begin to dry up. In fact, the money will be drying up quicker and quicker as the business owners raise the prices. And very soon, the majority of the population can't afford to buy things. The rich business owners who've been price gouging this entire time can still afford food, but the rest can't. So your concentration of wealth in Burundi, all it's done is bring in a bunch of extra people and increase inequality within the country. Okay, so it's not going to work in one country. What about if I build up the whole region, make everyone better off? To which your advisor then chimes in, well, in that case, $100 billion is just a drop in the bucket. Come back when you have more. How can it be this hard? Even when you throw all the money you can at it, it still doesn't solve any of these problems. You either need to solve everything at once, or it becomes really difficult. But surely there's some way to actually do this. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Looking at how foreign aid or FDI or private investment or even state backing, international banks or even the IMF, who actually has the capacity to end poverty within Africa? Surely one or a combination of these guys does. Well, to take us through foreign aid, its impact, and the difficulties of getting it onto the ground, we turn to our first guest. Part one. So much money, but not enough sense to make change. The richest world gives about 120, 140 billion dollars in aid to developing countries each year. And that's used for a whole range of different things. It's used for schools and hospitals, it's used for roads, it's used for airports, it's used for some really terrible things and some really amazing things. But a lot of it makes a huge difference and saves a lot of lives. Max Lawson is the head of inequality policy for Oxfam International. He's also previously the head of policy and campaigns at Oxfam Great Britain and has helped author some of Oxfam's most high-profile papers. He's also worked for Oxfam as a governance advisor for many years, implementing policy in 25 countries, covering budgets, governance, and public spending. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. 
I think I'd probably divide it in two. So you have kind of humanitarian aid, which goes to the conflict-affected, very fragile states, often doesn't go to the government. It would go to, let's say, agencies like Oxfam to provide clean water in South Sudan. And that's often the kind of picture people have in their head of foreign aid. You know, it's kind of a humanitarian endeavour, and that's a really important part. But uh, it's not the biggest proportion. The biggest proportion of aid is more longer term development for things like infrastructure, for building schools, for building clinics. Um, and I'd say the most aid dependent countries are these days broadly in Africa. I think if you broaden out the description of aid to include South-South cooperation, like money from China and India, then you'd see a broader group of countries. But the traditional definition of aid, which comes from the OECD, I'd say the majority of that now goes to Africa. And that's partly because that's where the majority of the poorest people now are. So if the objective of aid is to reduce poverty, then that's where you want to put it. Obviously, today we're looking at some of the difficulties around foreign aid, one of which is prioritisation. As an example, let's take a look at Burundi. See, if you give Burundi mosquito nets, that saves lives, but it doesn't boost the economy. If you give them money for a road, well, there's no economy there and the workers there are going to get attacked by mosquitoes. And if you build up their economy, well, they have no road to be able to get that to market. Is there a way to actually solve this bit by bit or does it require a much wider approach? Speaking personally, I mean, I've lived in lots of different countries in Africa and there's many progressives who are really, really against aid and they just see it as a kind of colonial instrument used to perpetuate the interests of rich countries. I think that's very much true and it's often their glory projects their white elephants their companies and it's their priorities rather than the priorities of, of the countries themselves but i think you can tar the whole of aid with with that brush really easily and i am a big fan of foreign aid that works in the right directions and the right priorities and the most important thing to do is to work out what a government wants to do um, and connect with them and support them in doing that and all too often, it really is just the glory projects of particular donors. But um, when it's given properly and given long term in support of government plans, then aid can make a really massive difference to people's lives. Obviously, one of the big criticisms when it comes to talking about foreign aid is about the fact that, you know, yes, it does go to feeding kids and doing good in the country. But by organisations paying to feed those kids, the government no longer needs to. Freeing up government funds for them to spend on guns or mansions, etc., etc. Is there a way of giving foreign aid without this problem occurring? I think in humanitarian situations, it's incredibly difficult. And I think anyone who says it isn't is, is lying to you because you have a humanitarian imperative, which is to keep people alive. And that kind of gives a certain simplicity to the need to get in there fast, get food to people, get clean water is what Oxfam specialised in. I remember going to South Sudan to a big massive refugee camp there some years back and seeing seeing firsthand, you know, the clean water that we provide. And in some ways it's so simple, it's so easy that we can do that and it keeps a lot of people alive and stops a lot of kids getting sick. But at the same time, you are effectively propping up the South Sudanese government, which is immensely corrupt. It then collapsed into war again, uh, I think just a year later. And it is really, really difficult because, you know, as a humanitarian organisation, your primary job is to is to keep people alive. But equally, you do end up in situations where you are effectively providing the public services that a government really should be. And particularly governments like the South Sudanese, who have significant revenues now from oil. You know, it's not like they 
can entirely plead poverty. I think there are other governments, um, I'd say, for instance, the government in Malawi, which is far from perfect, but they don't have a massive source of extractive revenue. They don't have another source of growth or money. They need they need the help. But yes, it is a problem. I'd say it's less of a problem with these longer term development endeavours. If anything, the government is trying to compensate the whole time for the low quality of the aid that's given. So often governments you'll find in Africa, they will spend all of their money paying their teachers and their health workers because the donors from rich countries refuse to pay the salaries of anyone. They don't want to get locked into uh, long-term commitments. But the fact is that some of these uh, you know, public services like education, like health, are absolutely built on the people, on the trained nurses, on, on, on the, the trained doctors and on the trained teachers. So I've seen plenty of instances where governments are picking up the slack where donors are refusing to fund the right thing. So again, it's a mixed picture, but it's definitely the case that in choosing to provide services for people in a country, that certainly in, in some of the most fragile, war-afflicted states, you are effectively, in some ways, propping up one side or another, and that would always be an issue. Organizations like Oxfam have had lots of successes over the years, but there also are some projects that haven't really gone as well. Can you take us through some of the projects that didn't work out and what lessons we might be able to take from them for future endeavors? I can give an example from from my own experience. I used to live at a teacher training college in in Malawi, and I wouldn't say this was an example of going terrible wrong, but it's just an idea of how donors have a different perspective of what's viable and what isn't. So the Canadians built a a, a bunch of houses for teachers. You had um, other donors that were providing some materials for classrooms. We were training teachers. Um, So you had different donors providing different bits of the puzzle. And they used to meet on a regular basis and and at least talk to each other. But these teacher training colleges had been closed for eight months. And we as Oxfam were part of a campaign to kind of get them reopened because the the country at that time, because of HIV, was losing about four or five teachers a week were dying. And this is a country that desperately needs more teachers. You've got kids in classrooms, or not in classrooms, kids sitting under trees with a teacher. And you've got classes of 100, 150 kids. So... Teachers are like gold dust, and yet these colleges have been closed for eight months. And each donor blamed the other donor, and then we had to dig into why it was they were closed. And it was such a simple reason. Basically, the hostels, because they were boarding colleges, people would come from all over the country to learn how to be a teacher, and they they stayed on on site. And the, the hostels had become so dilapidated, and all they needed was a lick of paint and some new mattresses, And then they could reopen the college. So you had teacher trainers sitting idle, being paid, unable to train. You had thousands of potential students up and down the country ready to be trained. And all it needed was one donor to say, I'll pay for some paint and some mattresses. And that didn't quite fit in their framework or their agreement. So we just, we went to the newspapers in the end and we made a massive song and dance about it with the teachers union. And finally, the Germans came forward and said, "We'll, we'll buy your mattresses. And then the teacher training colleges could open. But it's it's farcical stories like that that you hear all the time where donors just refuse to cooperate or there'll be one small thing that stops things happening. And that that's immensely frustrating to see, as you can imagine. There are two schools of thought when it comes to foreign aid that some will suggest keeping things small and manageable and focus on building up one particular region with attainable goals and clear-cut results but others will suggest that these are much wider scale problems. 
that you have to fix the problems in Kenya, the DRC, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, before you could actually look at solving the problems in Burundi, that things should be tackled as a region-wide effort. Where do you sit on that particular debate? In my experience, regional-wide initiatives tend to stumble because there is so much rivalry between countries. You know, the, 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 I suppose the most famous example of that is the Kahura Basa Dam in Mozambique, which I visited at one point, and it's an absolutely enormous dam built by the Portuguese just before independence and the huge fight to kick the Portuguese out uh, by Frelimo. And it produces Im immense amounts of power, way more electricity than, than Mozambique needs. And the whole idea was to have a regional, because it's an enormous gorge, basically, on the Zambezi. So that's where you need to have your dam. Makes total sense. Produces immense amounts of power. And the idea was that electricity would be exported to Zimbabwe and to South Africa. But I think a lot of these regional plans that often come from the World Bank are so naive about politics, you know, because at the time, the really left-wing government of Falimo was not going to export electricity to the white supremacists in South Africa, and neither were the white supremacists in South Africa that could be reliant on keeping the lights on with Mozambique. So, you know, it's a, I think it's a good example of how a regional initiative only really works when you know that all of those governments are going to work together. So I think national endeavours are probably more productive and the national level is a good place to invest your money. And I think the best way to do it is through what they call budget support. So you would say to the government of Kenya, to give your take your example, you know, we will give you aid money, the equivalent of 10% of your budget. In return for that, we want to know that you're prioritising getting every child in school or ensuring that everyone's immunised or cracking down on corruption. So you wouldn't give it with, without any strings attached, but you would give it in a flexible way to the budget as a whole. And I think in our experience and a lot of the evidence and the data and the research shows that's when aid really starts to make a big difference. So if I put you in the shoes of the leader of a developing state, can you take us through the advantages or disadvantages when picking between private donors or the BRI or the World Bank or even the US government or someone like Oxfam? What sort of strings come with each of those options? Whichever one you're going for, size really matters because there's an enormous amount of paperwork and reporting and there were some amazing facts, killer facts done about kind of just how many donor delegations the Ministry of Health was uh, having to accommodate in Tanzania. It's like three or four a week from different donation, uh, donors. So, I mean, the first thing you want to do is find out who's going to give you a massive pile of money because that's where you want to put your energies because so much of this is about scrappy little, little bits of cash, you know, $100,000 here, a million dollars here, which for the amount of effort and time, if you think these are governments that are very poorly staffed with very you know very low resources so i think that's the first thing which is why the multilateral agencies the world bank the global fund they're very important because they do have the big bucks you know and what that means is for hiv funding in a country like kenya you only have to fill in two grant applications and they're enormous and they will pay for hiv medicines for every single person in, in kenya that needs them and keeps many, many, many people alive. That would be a good example. At the other end of the spectrum, you might have an area of aid, let's say uh, water and sanitation, where there are lots of NGOs, and lots of very small actors. 
they'll say, I'll work in this region or this district or these 20 villages. And they probably do quite a good job of those 20 villages. But you can imagine trying to put together a patchwork of coverage of, of clean water with like 30 or 40 different actors. So in a sense, I'd say it doesn't really matter whether they're private, multilateral or government. What really matters is, is, is the size and the flexibility of the money they're giving. I think to talk about China and the BRI, I think I saw that firsthand when I lived in Kenya. There, I think it's about the flexibility and the ability to fund quickly and to build things quickly because the Chinese are incredibly good at building stuff really quickly. And the infrastructure they built in Kenya just in the period that I was there was absolutely amazing in terms of how fast they did it and what they built, including a brand new railway all the way from Nairobi to the sea. That railway, the original railway, dated back to colonial times and was bought, built by the British. And they built it in the space of like three or four years. So the, the Chinese are very, very good at infrastructure. Uh, what they're not very good at is accountability. Much of the money is in the form of loans. So Kenya had to take on a lot of loans from China in order to pay for that railway. I do know from, from, from Kenya that it was quite clear that it there's a lot less concerned about corruption than perhaps other donors are. You know, they just, they're happy to just lend the money, get the job done. Um, but there are definitely hidden costs in terms of corruption and lack of accountability and money going missing. So yeah, so that's, that would be a bit of an overview of the, of the key players. So if you're an African government and you want to build a road, first place you'll go is China. You know, if, you, if you're an African government and you want support for your budget to make sure that you can pay teachers and, and keep schools running, then you'd probably go to the World Bank. You'd probably have a longer term development aid. And for the US, again, the US is a big, big donor. So when they give money, they tend to give quite substantial amounts of money. So, uh, you know, they're a popular donor for that reason, but they tend to be a lot more complicated. And what makes the US more complicated to work with than others? Because you're working with about 17 or 18 different bits of the US government who all don't talk to each other. Um, uh, there's not one big aid agency. You know, you don't go to the US government PLC and say, can I apply for some money? You know, it, 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 you're actually doing multiple different actors and that makes it a lot more complicated. And they tend to have a lot more strings attached as well compared to the Chinese. I mean, it is true to say with China, you're also dealing with lots of different actors. You know, when people talk about the BRI and aid from China, you're talking about lots of private actors from China, public actors from China, actors from China where you're not sure whether they're public or private, a bit of a mixture, kind of state-owned banks and, and, and firms. So that's also complicated, but they just move a lot quicker. So um, particularly with infrastructure, I mean, you could say they build to a lower quality or you could be, say they build to more appropriate quality. I mean, I could give you a good example of there was a, a highway that was being built just near our house in Nairobi and it was being built the most of the time we were there and half of the highway was being built by the Japanese and then the rest of the highway was being built by the Chinese. Now, you talk to any of the taxi drivers or anyone in Nairobi, they were saying they really appreciate the quality workmanship of the Japanese, which had much better storm drains and, you know, it was just clearly a higher spec. But when we left, it still wasn't finished. And the Chinese one had already been finished for a year and a half. You know, people were already driving on it. So take from that what you will. I mean, basically the, the, the richer donors, the Japanese, the Europeans, the Americans, they tend to 
build things more expensively uh, to a kind of specification they would expect at home with their own contractors. And China does it a lot more quickly, perhaps because they themselves are a developing country and they know they know what to do and they know how to get it done. A phrase you hear a lot in policy circles is that foreign aid is just buying other countries' foreign policy. That countries give aid in hopes of other countries acting in a more beneficial way toward the donor. What would you say to that? It was very true in the Cold War, absolutely. And it was all about which side you were on particularly in Africa. So you saw, take a country like Tanzania, uh, they had a really, in fact, they were a non-aligned country, so they had a, a strong relationship even back in the 60s with China. But other countries like Ethiopia had a very strong relationship with Russia. You know, they backed that side of the Cold War. Then you had other countries like the, the what was formerly known as Zaire, now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, immensely corrupt, led by this um, absolutely crazy, colourful dictator Mobutu, who many people will remember. And they were heavily, heavily bankrolled by the World Bank, by the US government. So then it was really about which side you were on. That kind of came to an end at the end of the Cold War. And uh, you saw overall aid levels fall because ultimately, you know, there was less interest in giving foreign aid because rich countries were less interested mm. in their foreign policy objectives. And then I think what you've seen in the in the 2000s is, is that pick up again. Uh, because of the, the role of China in particular. So China making enormous investments all over the world. Depends what you mean by foreign policy. So I often give the example of the Swedish, the Norwegians, the Danish. You know, they're some of the best aid donors in the world. They're the most generous in the world per capita. And they give uh, amazing amounts of aid to, to wonderful things all over the world. Um, and as a result, they have a wonderful reputation all over Africa. And they would say, if you talk to them, that for them, that was a foreign policy objective because they don't really have an army. They don't have a kind of military presence. Uh, they wanted to have punch above their weight in the world. And to do that, they give a lot of money away. So I would say it's not necessarily uh, doing good and having a kind of foreign policy objective are not necessarily contradictory. Um, and you can end up with win-win situations. But I think you've definitely got a situation now where, you know, you know, what happened, I think, is um, the rich donors uh, got used to kind of a situation in the 90s and 2000s where they were the kind of only game in town. And then suddenly the Chinese arrived with loads of money and uh, they all um, were kind of caught napping in a way and realised that suddenly these countries that they felt they had a lot of control over had somewhere else to go for resources, somewhere else to go for investment. And I think that was probably a good thing. I think most African countries would say... Uh, it's, it's certainly more accountable and better for them to have a range of different places they can go to and ask for money than purely becoming cap in hand to rich countries all the time. What I would say is aid is always in one way or other linked to foreign policy and commercial objectives. So it, it's very rare you get a donor that is just giving money purely out of the goodness of their heart. It's often a mixture. And I would certainly say that um, China's very interested in its, its kind of soft power, soft foreign policy, if you like. I mean, I think there probably are some instances, particularly with uh, trying to get governments to stop supporting Taiwan, you know, specific things around votes in the UN General Assembly, that they're all guilty of doing that. Uh, but China's definitely got that in mind. One more example. So in 2005, Kofi Annan had a process of trying to expand the Security Council to have some more permanent members. Um, and Germany and Japan were desperate to be new permanent members. 
And they both dramatically increased their aid budgets that year. And um, they, uh, the Germans in particular, were really open about it. They announced the massive increase in the German aid budget was announced not in Germany, but in New York by their UN ambassador and directly linked to trying to get African countries, of which there are 50 or so, uh, that's 50 votes. You know, that's a, it's a big it's a big thing you want to uh, get on side um, to vote for them in the UN. So it happens all the time and they're all doing it. And I think it's probably got a bit worse in the last 10 or 15 years. With the entry of programs like the BRI and China becoming such a dominant force in foreign aid funding throughout Africa, how has the US strategy towards this issue changed? I remember when China started really ramping up its aid to infrastructure. Maybe I was being a bit naive, but I thought, you know, this this could work. You know, we've got like a division of labour here because at that time, the Europeans in particular and the UK was a very big progressive donor at that time. Uh, they were funding the schools, the hospitals. Um, but the one area that was really neglected was infrastructure. And the Chinese were very good at it, you know, and in a in some kind of rational world, uh, they, they probably would have continued in that vein, you know, like, um, but of course that wasn't what happened. The Europeans and the Americans saw the Chinese intervention as massive competition. And instead of uh, thinking this is a good division of labor, they in fact scaled back their support for education and for health to a lesser extent for health, but certainly that kind of aid and have very much boosted their investment in infrastructure and roads and you know so much of this infrastructure is completely inappropriate as well you know you get massive there's a a new highway that's been built in the middle of nairobi which is entirely on stilts like it's a highway in the sky and it goes directly from the richest part of the city to the airport for instance this is a, a city full of immense slums that have no tarred roads you know like so infrastructure in particular is really susceptible to having massive projects that suit the president and what he thinks would be good uh, for him and his friends. And that happens all over the place. So it's a real shame that the quality of aid, if you like, has gone down considerably because everyone is competing now to kind of win those infrastructure contracts for their firms and for their contractors. And I think the US is is as guilty of that as as anyone else. I think not particularly more guilty than the Italians or or the British, but certainly it's a big problem. So foreign aid alone is still not going to cut it. It comes with strings, and in addition, there's heaps of red tape. And as anyone who works in government will tell you, when you up foreign aid spending to another country, it all blinks an eye. But when you reduce foreign aid spending, you see endless headlines of US abandons X country, US picks Y country as its favorite, why has Washington thrown Z country to the wolves? And those are the sort of headlines governments really want to avoid, even if in context they make complete sense as they not only make you look bad, but they also might create resentment. Resentment that your geopolitical rivals may seek to exploit. You also need to build up these economies. You need to build up businesses inside the region. And to do so, these countries are probably going to need loans. So let's head to the banks. These huge global banks who can lend the billions that these countries need to start up entire industries that catapult their economies forward. After all, look at Thailand, who took out loans to start up and specialize in building computer hard drives. And now they're global leaders. So the theory goes that with some good targeted loans, these African states could do similar things. But would it actually work? Are loans from these intergovernmental institutions 
the magic bullet. But to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Purchasing Policy two types of forces in Western developed nations. One is that many people recognize that there is something deeply unfair about the world where some countries are still mired in civil wars, some of it caused in the past by Western nations' interventions, and the gap in terms of income per capita, poverty, childhood diseases is just staggering between poor nations and rich nations. And there is a constituency that wants to try to rectify that with foreign aid. But on the other hand, part of foreign aid is given by governments in the form of military aid, development assistance, via their contributions to other international organizations. And while the same considerations are important, there is always a strategic element that comes in. And there is a way in which foreign aid is also part of the overall foreign policy approach of countries such as the US, the UK, or you know China or Russia. Darren Smoglu is an institute professor at MIT and an elective fellow at the National Academy of Sciences, American Philosophical Society, the British Academy of Sciences, the Turkish Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Econometric Society, and the European Economic Association, as well as the Society of Labor Economists. He's also a member of the Group of 30 and is the author of five books, including the New York Times bestseller, Why Nations Fail, Power, Prosperity, and Poverty. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. There are those who say, you know, we've spent billions of dollars, that's too much. And there are those who say, we've spent billions of dollars and that's nothing, it's a drop on the bucket. And the truth of the matter is that if you think foreign aid is going to be a direct tool for building prosperity by transferring resources, the amount we have spent is far from sufficient. You're not going to make any of the poor countries more functional, more prosperous, expand the middle class by spending a couple of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And in fact, there is zero evidence that foreign aid really has a transformative effect on the incomes of these countries. So sure, of course, if you go and spend, you know, $2 billion in Burundi, you will immediately increase Burundi's GDP. Why? You are demanding labor and the goods and natural resources that they're producing. So you're creating a demand effect and that's going to create a temporary blip. But all the evidence we have from many aid experiments and other data is that that's not going to last unless those kinds of investments transform the human capital, so education, skills of the workforce, the quality of the machinery, technology, and most importantly, the institutions of these countries, it's not going to have a transformative effect. And a lot of things, a lot of things are stacked against having that sort of institutional and deep technological impact because it's a bunch of foreigners who are coming and spending money, handing it to who they know, their allies, whoever is more vocal about getting the money. And often that gets mired in corruption. It doesn't get allocated the right way. It circumvents other mechanisms, social mechanisms that exist in these countries for building cohesion, communication, and so on and so forth. You can see that very clearly in the, in the Afghan case. You know, billions of dollars were spent in Afghanistan as well over the course of U.S. occupation. 
and it has not really brought economic development and it has not really stopped the rise of Taliban as we saw unfortunately a year ago. It's very difficult to think that you're going to have the sort of transformative effects just pouring money. But that doesn't mean that foreign aid is useless. You can use it for specific purposes, for example, for building expertise. You can use it for fighting the worst kind of human tragedies like famines or major health problems, major diseases, epidemics. That's been very successfully done in some instances, you know, for example, in fighting Ebola. And there are other specific uses of aid that could be very useful. In Afghanistan, I think one of the things that the American uh, occupying forces and American bureaucrats did was to invest in girls schooling. You know, if it wasn't for Taliban reversing these things, that would have had a transformative effect on society slowly and not in every domain and not very easily. But that was the sort of thing that can have an impact in a society where girls were not going to school because there were no schools and there were strong norms against women's schooling. So there can be things that you can do quite productively with foreign aid. But most of what we do with foreign aid isn't that. So one of the main issues when it comes to foreign aid spending going well or not going well is finding the exact problem that needs to be fixed. As an example, and to explain what I mean, using foreign aid money to build huge plantations of corn and vegetables in Burundi sounds really nice, but as history demonstrates, isn't great when you put it into practice. As having all of these vegetables is really nice, but when you don't have the road to get those vegetables to the market, they all just end up going rotten before they're sold anyway. So where your book suggests the best bang for buck spending is, is by building up the country's institutions, the government, the infrastructure, the schools, etc, etc. So can you take us through this concept and why institutions are, in your view, the most important thing to build up? Well, I mean, I think everything goes back to institutions. At the end, we are talking of a complex economic system in which we have to allocate, you know, even in the simplest economy, we have to allocate thousands of goods across millions of people, build supply chains, transport systems, production facilities of very different sorts, hire workers. All of these very involved economic transactions require both incentives and trust. And even more importantly, if they're going to work halfway efficiently, they require opportunities so that people can allocate their talent according to the laws of comparative advantage or what they want or what they feel is their calling. And all of these need to be based on some sort of institutional structure. Quite importantly, that institutional structure needs to allow some sort of market process to work. It needs to increase trust. It needs to limit what powerful actors, politicians, monopolies, the very wealthy and rich elites can do. It needs to provide some sort of education and level playing field for the less advantaged uh, citizens in a country. So all of these things are institutional. If you don't build those institutions, you're not going to have the sort of durable economic growth that you know we know many countries have achieved in the past and we know all countries are capable of achieving today so that's the role of institutions if you think about foreign aid, you know, most foreign aid will not help that type of institution building. And that's part of the criticism that I was bringing that's futile to say, oh, we're going to get Burundi or Chad or Ghana to develop thanks to foreign aid. Yes, some of these countries have managed to develop, look at Ghana, but it hasn't happened thanks to foreign aid. It, hasn't ha it has happened via a slow process of their institutions improving over decades. Well, money can come from heaps of places. It can be given by foreign aid or as a loan or through organizations like the World Bank or the IMF or even come from China and its BRI projects. But money can also come from private companies. 
companies just investing in this country, opening up a new factory there. And several people will point out that it is private companies that lead the way in certain countries. That it's the private sector that makes up the largest investment group into countries like Angola or Equatorial Guinea. But can you take us through the difference in prioritization between private companies and when organizations like the IMF invest? You know, I'm going to bring it back to institutions. Institutions are going to also shape how foreign capital or foreigners who come are investing what they are doing and whether they are doing it for just their own benefits or for the broader public good or the common good in the country. The first time Europeans ventured into Africa, they also poured a lot of resources in there. But that was to build forts and transfer resources to slave raiders so that they can steal millions of people as slaves to transport to North and uh, South America. So you don't want that kind of money and you don't want that kind of influence. And today, too, both Chinese and Western companies are sometimes interested in something not that different. Now extract the resources, valuable minerals and metals that many African countries have, diamonds, gold. And, you know, are they going to do that in a way that develops the local economy? Again, that depends on institutions. In the case of Angola, Mozambique, no, they didn't do that. It was actually something that fueled the civil war and long-term underdevelopment of these nations. But in the case of Botswana, originally they tried to do the same thing as well, but Botswana government pushed back and tried to set up a different system. And then the partnership between Botswana's government, private sector, and foreign capital made Botswana one of the fastest growing nations in the world. So it really depends on what types of incentives foreign capital, foreign companies have. Don't get me wrong, some of the things that foreign capital can do in developing nations would be critical for economic growth. Most importantly, technology transfer. You know, uh, we are in a world in which technology is critical for economic growth and Western nations, and today increasingly China, are far more advanced in the development and use of many modern technologies. So the most effective way of transferring that technology is sometimes joint ventures or other ways in which direct investment by foreign companies brings that technology to developing nations. If you want to look at countries that have benefited from, say, electronics or cars, you know, joint ventures or other ways of Western technology flowing into the country was very important. But the question is, again, many nations are not seeing that type of foreign capital go in, go and ask Angolans or Mozambicans, or again, many resource-rich African countries and, you know, foreign companies did not really bring technology. They tried to exploit the resources of these countries. And this is where the institutional structure, both domestic and global, becomes critical. So let's look at some other groups that a developing state can turn toward when they're in desperate need of finance. And we'll start with the big three. The first being the World Bank, which is funded mostly by issuing bonds and is based in the United States, and for the most part pushes Western-friendly policy. The second would be the IMF, or the International Monetary Fund, which is kind of the finance arm of the UN. These are the guys who usually fund bailouts and provide countries with loans that help them get profitable industries off the ground helping Kenya build a highway so it can actually get its crops to the ports. But it's also the group that the money tends to have a lot of strings attached to it. Where we see events like the IMF being happy to bail out Greece when their economy is about to default, but with those loans will also come demands for Greece to implement harsh economic reforms and undergo austerity across the country. Things like raising the age of retirement and slashing social security. So before we move on to the third bank, let's talk about the IMF for a minute. Why would the IMF bail out a country like Greece 
that they know is struggling for money, and why wouldn't Greece just allow their country to default rather than accept these harsh economic terms for the money? That is a very complicated topic, and it's multidimensional. The first thing we have to note is that once you are integrated into the global capital markets, there are going to be, whether we want it or not, there are going to be restrictions that come from those global financial markets on domestic democratic processes. And part of the reason for that is because all countries, not just Greece, but all countries are subject to the possibility that foreign capital may flee. And if that happens, even countries that are not as indebted as Greece will have major problems because they need to roll their debt, they need to get additional funding, they need to be able to negotiate with banks that are part of the bigger supply chain of credit in those countries. So this is the reason why there is a fraught relationship between local domestic governments and international financial institutions of various different sorts. So in many cases, especially in Latin America, that has not worked out very well. Austerity was imposed with much less support than the Greek case. And, and there were severe recessions, sometimes you know transformative recessions that changed the course of those countries politically as well as economically. But how you get out of that is not an easy question. In the Greek case, the situation was complicated First of all, Greece got much better terms than many Latin American countries, but still not good enough. So that forced the uh, austerity. But it's not that Greece was luckier and, and international institutions were sort of less tough on Greece, may or may not have been. The problem is that Greece did not have one of the key tools that many of these Latin American countries had, which is devaluation. They were part of the euro and default would have probably meant collapse of the euro because banks would have collapsed without the credit lines that they had from foreign creditors and they wouldn't have the liquidity. And that would have ultimately left Greece without the ability to use the euro and, and, and you know, in a, even, even a deeper recession than any Latin American country has experienced. And I think it was that combination. Now, look at it from the point of view of the Greek consumers or Greek workers. You know, it was a very, very raw deal. There was a way in which the Greek economy could have weathered the storm with less damage, not zero damage, but less damage on the Greek workers. And that would have involved more transfers from creditors and international institutions, in particular debt write-offs and debt restructuring. But that would have been costly for international capital. And, and at the end, for various reasons, many of these banks didn't accept that. And then the Greek parties or the Greek government found itself in a corner. Referendum wanted to say no to the terms, but then they also felt, and probably not wrongly, that if they had gone ahead and implemented what the referendum asked them to do, that would have been Armageddon for the Greek economy, at least in the short run. And the third major group here, we're talking about the Chinese-led organizations. These being the Asian Development Bank or the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which are majority Chinese-funded organizations and for the most part are widely regarded as used to further Beijing's foreign policy interests. And the last bank we'll be talking about here is the New Development Bank, which is kind of a joint interest bank between Beijing and Moscow's interests. So a gross oversimplification here, but to summarize, the World Bank is US-aligned. The IMF is semi-neutral, UN-aligned. The Asian Development and Asian Infrastructure Banks are Beijing-aligned. And the New Development Bank 
is Beijing and to a lesser extent Moscow aligned. So when a country is facing default, knowing that if the default were to go ahead, it would cause a massive amount of the country's investors to flee overseas, they can usually pick between all these banks for which one they want to use to bail them out or consolidate their debt. So what makes a country like Sri Lanka pick the Asian Development Bank over, let's say, the US-led World Bank? We are talking of the ecosystem that's created by international financial institutions. So the ability of these countries to do that sort of shopping is not available. So again, actually, the IMF played a very different role, a much more benign role in the Greek case than many past experiences with Turkey, Latin America, some Southern European countries in the past where IMF was the enforcer of the of of the of the orthodoxy of market discipline and and that was the terms that countries couldn't reject it was imposed on the IMF because they had no other choice if the IMF did not approve what they were trying to do then the other international banks individually wouldn't lend to them. So that's the sense in which the shopping would not have been possible because the IMF was the gatekeeper. And in some sense, you know, that brings the bigger issue here. We live in a globalized world. It is natural that we need global institutions. So if I say, you know, earlier on I said, I talked about the role of domestic institutions uh, dealing with a country's elites or foreign capital that comes into a country. But in a globalized world, it's not enough to have domestic institutions. You need global institutions. And we don't have anything that can compare to a country's courts, uh, regulatory system, and, and government at the international level. We don't have supranational institutions. Whatever supranational bodies we have, such as the UN, World Bank, uh, you know, so on, they're not that powerful. But in the financial sphere, the IMF plays a very important role. And the tragedy is, however, that the IMF is viewed, and the, the truth is not that different from this view, as enforcing the benefits of American and Western banks or, you know, the U.S. government's uh, long-term policy sort of priorities. So it's not really playing the role of a sort of a neutral institutional structure. So I understand why these banks would lend money out, even below the market interest rate. If someone like the IMF were to lend money out to build a port, and the construction of that port now means the local economy can export 10 times as much bauxite, well, job well done. But why do these organizations also do debt forgiveness and just write off loans? What do they actually gain from that? Again, another great but complex question. For, you know, first of all, when it is private institutions that are doing debt restructuring, there is an element of forgiveness. You know, if you owe me a million dollars and 10% interest, you owe me, you know, $100,000 today. If I restructure your debt, what that means is I say, oh, well, you know, the debt that was due today, you know, it's not going to be due for another five years. So, and in, in, in the process, you are, I'm essentially forgiving, you know, all the interest that you have to pay for five years. So I have forgiven $500,000 of that debt. Why would I do that? Well, because the hope is if I do this forgiveness, you might actually pay me back. Whereas if I were to insist, you're going to default and I'm going to get very little. Some of that takes that form, but that is not enough. We know from many of the messy cases where private banks or hedge funds went after countries such as Argentina, you know, if one creditor doesn't want to re renegotiate, it can still get part of its money without completely bankrupting the economy, creating a lot of hardship, but without completely bankrupting the economy. So the incentives of private lenders is not going to be 
sufficient to take into account the solvency of the country. So that means that there is a very important role for international institutions that coordinate that. And IMF has played that role. The European Union, in the case of Greece, has played a little bit of that role. But even that's not enough. And why am I saying that's not enough? Look, look at it this way. If the IMF acts as the agent of international financial institutions, it will do some amount of restructuring, some amount of debt write-off, but only from the selfish point of view of the collective of these financial institutions. But what about the Greek people? What about the Greek consumer, Greek worker? So there is a more holistic approach which would say, okay, we should go a little bit beyond the forgiveness that would be good for international financial institutions because we don't want the international financial institutions to make a couple more uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of profits, but at the expense of hunger for children and workers going hungry and, uh, and health system collapsing in Greece. Well, what about local banks, keeping community interest inside the local area? A lot of people have recently been talking about localized banking and microfinance possibly being a solution here. Things like loaning $100 to a Sudanese farmer so he can buy a donkey that would allow him to better plow his field. Is this actually a solution? Or frankly, the administration of tracking millions of tiny little loans would be a bit of a nightmare for the banks? I think we have to be realistic. Again, there is much myth-making when it comes to microloans as was the case with foreign aid. There is no evidence that microloans have revolutionized the economy of any country. They can be helpful. There are people in hardship. There are small people who are unemployed, uh, you know, small businesses or, or people, private citizens who are unemployed, and they have some ideas and they can get microloans and uh, get off the ground, start their small businesses. Those are all very valuable. But that's not the way that most major economic transformations take place. You need big manufacturing or big factories, big supply chains, infrastructure. For all of these, you need to go beyond microloans. The other thing that we tend to ignore in much of this discussion is that you know there are transaction costs. As you pointed out, it is very costly to monitor what people are doing once they get the money to collect them back, to deal with uh, payment difficulties. These transaction costs don't scale with the amount of lending. You have to do some amount of due diligence. So that means that for small loans, these transactional costs are very high. Now, there are ways of reducing the transactional costs. If you look at places where micro lending is more successful, it will be in places, you know, say Kenya, where you have a system like M-Pesa, which uh, enables much low transaction cost financial transfers using people's cell phones, but they're not going to be a substitute for big loans and big investments in these countries that can generate employment for hundreds of thousands of people. So knowing all these complications and taking into account everything we've talked about, if I were to just hand you a trillion dollars this evening and say, solve poverty in Africa, how would you go about doing that? Well, I'm not sure that I would start with a trillion dollars. I wouldn't know what to do with a trillion dollars. But let me start with a few of the other issues that you have already touched upon. First of all, I think with much less money, you can start shifting the focus on building institutions in these African countries. And that's a multi-pronged approach that you need to work on many fronts. You mentioned the problem of much of the lending and money in these countries going to autocrats, kleptocrats. We also need a better international system so that these types of debts are completely written off. You know, the, the international financial system works under the fiction that any lending that international banks have made is legit. 
and all of it needs to be paid back. I think that's complete fiction. You know, when I make a bad investment, I suffer the consequences. And internationally, we have to recognize that lending to kleptocrats who then use that money to buy arms and kill their population is not just ethically wrong. It's actually bad investment as well. And the banks that have made these investments should suffer the consequences. So we should have a debt write-off for not all the debt that developing countries have taken, but debt that was taken by non-representative governments and used for self-aggrandizing projects or kleptocratic practices or repressing their population. Then we need to also start with a clean slate in terms of technology transfers and exports. We still, in the Western world, we gave access to the WTO to China, which was so important to Chinese growth uh, with a bunch of negative economic consequences over the last 20 years. But if you look at many of the poorest countries, they still don't have access to European or American markets in the goods in which they specialize, including agricultural goods. So I think that's a much more important thing than foreign aid or trillions of dollars that can be all at once poured in. But there is actually need for specific investments. And I think the most important investments that need to be made are in expertise. You need to build bureaucratic expertise. You need to build, train bureaucrats, judges, prosecutors, and you need to train them all both in sort of the science of whatever they're doing and also in ethical values. You know, institutions are critical. You need to have the institution to provide incentives, but you also need to create the type of understanding in these people that, you know, certain types of behaviors are going to be shunned and negatively valued and are not going to be accepted. So I think it needs a broad, a holistic education for these types of general bureaucratic investments that are going to be important in this instance. So the loans came with strings, even more than the aid did. So should these countries be looking to private companies, hoping they put their factories here in Africa to make cars and steel? After all, the labor cost is low, and there's a lot of customers in Africa. Should these nations be chasing the foreign direct investment of private companies? Surely that's the solution going forward. Well, to answer that, we're doing to our final guest. Part 3 Subsidizing stagnation. Well, look, the African continent is really complex. We're talking about 54 or 55 nations, if you look at the whole geography. And therefore, different countries have different needs. And a number of African countries are weaning them off international development aid. They are preferring trade foreign direct investment. But there are poor landlocked countries that will need a mix. They will need international development. They will need ODA, as well as growing their economies too. This is one of the drivers for a pan-African trade initiative, the African Free Continental Trade Area, which was launched a couple of years ago. And all African countries except Eritrea have ratified and that's aimed at also trying to remove tariffs and border restrictions and encourage uh, inter-Africa trade because aid and foreign direct investment isn't enough. Alex Vines is the head of the Africa program at the London-based think tank Chatham House and is also Chatham House's managing director for risk, ethics and resilience. In addition to this, he also chairs the UN panel of experts on Côte d'Ivoire and Liberia and was a member of the Commonwealth Observer Group to Mozambique. 
He also worked for Human Rights Watch as a senior researcher on its Africa, arms, business, and human rights programs, and has served as a consultant for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. On top of this, he's also written expert reports for the EU Parliament and has testified to lawmakers including the US Congress and Senate, the EU Parliament, the UK and Finnish Parliaments, and the Angolan and Mozambican National Assemblies. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. So aid for, for Africans, it does have strings attached historically, especially from the West. So there are conditionalities. Uh, it's also being used as a, as a geopolitical tool now. So there is a correlation between assistance that's provided by China and voting patterns, for example, related to protests in Hong Kong and other issues. Russia is much less involved in this. It doesn't have a deep pocket. So you, you can see that kind of correlation that reflects sometimes in the UN General Assembly uh, or at times, for example, among the non-permanent members of the UN Security Council in terms of votes either to abstain or particularly sometimes to vote in a particular direction. So aid is really important, but it does engender dependency. And so we are now moving into an era in the African continent that the majority of African countries are looking to weaken their dependence on, on overseas development assistance from others and broaden the amount of funding that comes in through uh, direct investments, foreign direct investment, so investors coming in, uh, and other kind of trading uh, relationships. So there are countries that have been quite successful in trying to go down that trajectory. A really good example that has had success is the small landlocked former Belgian colony, Rwanda, uh, which has, has had some spectacular growth rates. It's still very reliant on overseas development assistance, but it is also growing its private sector part of its economy and attracting foreign direct investment. So when it comes to foreign aid and investment, who gets to actually decide how that money's spent? If I give foreign aid to Mozambique, for example, am I giving it directly to the government of Maputo, who may decide to spend it on pet projects for the president, or am I giving it directly to the people, but thereby undermining the legitimacy of the government? Mozambique's a complicated case because a, a few years ago, there was an undisclosed loan scandal. Mozambique did not admit to the markets and to the IMF where it had been kind of borrowing money officially for kind of tuna fishing boats, but there was something a lot more uh, fishy, so to speak, than that going on. And so what was called direct budget support, which was direct aid to help the government kind of build its uh, capabilities, was suspended. And so the aid that was going in then four from international partners uh, just went through for humanitarian assistance and to the not-for-profit sector. Now that has changed and so direct budget support uh, is, is back but through multilateral institutions. So the African development banks are the kind of development bank uh, for, for the African continent but also the World Bank is involved uh, and it looks as if the European Union is also involved in this. What is changing is that bilateral donors, so that could be bilaterally the US or the Netherlands or the UK or uh, you know, a variety of other uh, countries bilaterally, uh, are not uh, involved in direct budget support any longer. They're not going to be doing that. And so I think there is a change of mood internationally in this regard, which is also coupled to the, you know, the belts uh, tightening that is taking place globally anyway, where there isn't that type of money available. And so that's also incentive for African countries that, that will need to stand more directly on their own rather than relying on direct funding from foreigners. So I want to gauge how much corruption actually impacts the amount of money that reaches its final destination. 
So it was a bit of a comparison here. If I were to give millions of dollars to Mali, as opposed to giving millions of dollars to Rwanda, with Rwanda being a far less corrupt nation, how much of that actually ends up in the kind of places I was hoping it would go? Rwanda, as you've mentioned, Michael, is a, is a kind of donor darling, and it's been very successful in, in kind of accounting for money internally. Now, Rwanda is a contentious country in terms of human rights and freedom expression and what it's done in its near abroad, particularly in eastern Congo. Uh, and there's a, a lot of controversy over that that's appeared again just recently. But it has met, well managed uh, internally how money has been used. And, and so businesses like that and donors like that, and they have also measured the, the, the number of people that have been moved out of abject poverty, absolute poverty, which is an important indicator Mali is a is a completely different example, which is that you've got a military junta there. You've had several coups, and it's incredibly, um, you know, there are sanctions on it. There's only humanitarian aid going in, and it's a very fractious situation in Mali right at the moment. And some of your listeners will also be aware that Russia is involved in Mali. It's provide the French pulled their military support out, and the Russian private military company Wagner Group are in uh, Mali now providing security support for, for the uh, Malian junta. So that's a messy uh, example, I think, to talk about. So whilst on one hand, we see images of starving kids, and most people would agree that we need to get food to these people and try and end the suffering. Others will contend that by aid donors giving food to these kids, it means that the government doesn't have to, which frees up chunks of their budget to be spent on weapons and mansions. What would you say to this? Yeah, again, you know, one size does not fit all. And there is such variability across the African continent in particular on, the, on this particular point. So the very needy need humanitarian aid. And, you know, I've been involved in the past, even in civil wars, where humanitarian aid by the UN, uh, it was decided that you needed to deliver some humanitarian aid to the rebel group to get permission to land the aid for a besieged city. In, I'm thinking of Angola. I was there during the civil war. And so you knew some of the, the aid would go to militaries, but you kind of figured that there was enough aid going in that there'd be enough then to also reach civilians. And that was the calculation. So, you know, these are really tough choices in a humanitarian crisis. And you got to just accept that there's going to be some seepage. It's not going to be perfect, but it is about saving lives. And one of the misfortunes for Africa is it is particularly not resilient for the, the shocks of climate change. And indeed, at the moment, uh, the shock from the war in Ukraine are also having strong reverberations in terms of very, very high inflation. And that's in turn meaning more people are being put back into absolute poverty. So the African continent for the next few years, I think, is going to have to become more of a priority again for the most vulnerable. For people who haven't travelled into Africa, they might not be aware that most flights and money transfers always head into the capital first and then out to the outer cities. As an example, if I wanted to fly into the east of Congo, I'd have to fly into Kinshasa, the capital in the west of the country, before then catching a domestic flight into the east of Congo. So with all of this funding and aid heading into the capital first, how much of it actually makes it out to the peripheries, the areas which most of the time is where the money is actually needed? You're absolutely right, uh, Michael. The, the academics talk about this as core and periphery. And so the elites are based in the capital. And what we've certainly seen in the Sahel is you've got kind of political economies built around the capital and kind of military training and support and, uh, and at times Praetorian guards protecting elites uh, that, that the population don't particularly respect. And then tied to that is the humanitarian issue of how do you get aid out into 
into the provinces. So again, some countries, uh, this has worked better than others, and that's a nature of the politics and the negotiation that, that's taking place. When people think of foreign aid, they envision smiling Americans handing bags of rice out to starving kids, all out of the goodness of Uncle Sam's heart. In reality, though, most foreign aid is only ever given out for the good of the donor, or for the private companies based in the donor country. As an example, a few years ago, Australia's largest foreign aid recipient was Australia. And what I mean by this was, yes, we were building highways in Indonesia, but not from the school to the well. We were building bypass highways from the Australian-owned mine site to the Australian-owned port, so our trucks full of raw materials could bypass transiting through the local community. How common an occurrence is this sort of foreign aid? So for many years, infrastructural development through aid was seen by the West as not something that you should be doing. And so this is where the Chinese, well, the, the original prototype was actually the Japanese, continued to do this and quite effectively in certain places. And then the Chinese really built this up through originally their, their kind of forum for Africa-China cooperation, FOCAC, which I believe was a prototype for the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Chinese then have got everybody re-looking at infrastructure, given the infrastructure deficits in, in, in Africa. So there are a number of these initiatives, and it's really interesting that, that, that China really was catalytic in getting everybody else to refocus on this. But when we look at private companies to do some of these investments, what incentive does a company have to invest in someone like Burundi that even if they could get the minerals out of the ground, it's still landlocked and a very long way and requiring a very expensive amount of infrastructure spending to actually be able to get it to a port? What incentive would they have to invest? And that is a problem that a lot of the focus is about what is the return. And Western uh, investments now into the African continent are much less paternalistic, uh, moving away from humanitarianism. So there is a strong private sector strategic uh, aspect to it. I mean, it's very striking on the fringes of the UN General Assembly. There was the United States hosted a meeting thinking through what are critical and strategic minerals in Africa and how to lock those in for the West. So we are back into something that has an echo with the Cold War of kind of geopolitical rivalry for not only minerals and energy, but also the supply chains. And so you're absolutely right. There are winners and losers in this. Uh, a landlocked country like Burundi might be interesting if it has a particular mineral uh, or commodity that people want. If it doesn't, then it is a really impoverished landlocked country and it's in trouble. Obviously, these days for Africa, there are quite a lot of avenues for funding whether it be the World Bank or the IMF or the Asian Development Bank. So what makes a country decide between to go one over the other? What we are seeing in many African countries is in this new era of, of in, intensified geopolitical rivalry, African countries uh, wanting to make sure that they go a la carte, that they're not pigeonholed. What I'm saying is, yes, they'll want a bit of Australian uh, you know, investment into mines, but they'll also want a bit of the Japanese, certainly a bit of China, uh, EU, America, and so they kind of mix it all up and ensure that, uh, you know, that that provides advantages for them. If you have a government uh, that is developmentally focused and wants to reduce poverty, this isn't a bad opportunity. Diversification of partnerships is actually a good thing. It creates a bit of competition. If you're a venal autocracy or kleptocracy, then that could be really bad because that's just about creaming off stuff for the elite and there'll be you know, no real benefit for reducing poverty, which is the single biggest challenge for the African continent. 
Everywhere else in the world is seeing a steep decline in poverty, except Africa, which saw flatlining of it and now a deepening of poverty again, partly because of the shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, but now also exacerbated by the really strong economic headwinds that have been created by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There is a bit of a reputation out there that if a country wants EU or US funding, will have to somewhat behave themselves and at least attempt some societal reforms. China, on the other hand, will work with anyone as long as it makes a profit. How true do you think this sentiment is? And should the US be adopting a similar strategy? Look, the China relationship with the African continent is is changing. We're at Chatham House. We're just completing a study of China's lending to, to African countries. And what is clear also is that Chinese lending to Africa has significantly declined since 2017. So there is a rowing back and China seems to have learned from some of its mistakes. My own view is that actually China might unwittingly have fallen into its own debt trap in a couple of African countries that it had no intention of doing so. But it was just lending money without really thinking through what these were for, because it was responding uh, to what African governments were asking it to do. And suddenly they find themselves in a hole that is then very difficult to, to dig themselves out. So uh, a bit of naivety there rather than anything malicious. So it is complicated. Um, but the new lending that China's doing now in Africa is actually about uh, into better government governed African countries, often in a competitive scenario. So we see this, uh, for example, uh, this year in 2022, uh, the Chinese are lending to Senegal and Ivory Coast Cote d'Ivoire. And sometimes the infrastructure deals that they've been bidding for, they succeed, sometimes they fail. But again, I think this is a really interesting development. Um, What this means, I think, is that the West, the United States in particular, need to think cleverly of how they might actually sometimes cooperate with China uh, within Africa. I think it's in both interests for a prosperous, stable continent. That's not possible in the South China Sea, for sure, and in China's near abroad. But Africa is far away from China. It's far away from the United States. And so there, I think there could actually be some common understanding. So I want to get my head around some of the strategies that investors use between these countries in Africa. So let's say I come to you with $100 billion and say, let's fix poverty in Africa. How would you implement that money? And I want to use three different countries here to see how you tackle each problem. The first country we'll do is the DRC, or the Democratic Republic of Congo, a large country with lots of internal problems and very weak central governance. The second would be Burundi, a small and very poor country, but one who owes a lot of its woes to simply the terrible geographic hand it was dealt. And for third, let's do Kenya, who has good ports and decent government, but still needs a bit of work before it can get enough food on the plate for all of its populations. What strategies would you use to approach each of these? Burundi and and the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC um, have very serious structural governance issues. Uh, their institutions are, are pretty fragile. I mean, Democratic of Congo is, is, is really only united in name. It's so, so big uh, as a country. And so that's a really tough one. But it, it is about trying, how do you encourage better governance, better institution building, better delivery, better effectiveness, have a government that actually in Kinshasa that has a pro-poor and developmental ambition rather than kind of elite preservation one, which is what it looks like. Burundi is a bit 
different because of its scale, but it has had an internal conflict. Uh, it's had uh, uh, some very rocky politics, uh, has been regarded as a pariah state until recently. And so it is about kind of aligning better politics there. Kenya is a completely different uh, case because it does have a vibrant civil society. Some of the institutions work. There has just been a peaceful uh, change of president again in Kenya after a difficult, fractious election. But that seems to have landed okay with President Ruto being elected. Uh, And so there it it is about technical support and how uh, Kenya can kind of grow and diversify its economy and build up internal resilience to climate change and other things. The the beauty of Kenya is it has better, it has a pool of better educated Kenyans. Its location is good and it is also attracting new industries. So tech, for example, is a significant part of the, the, the Kenyan economy that's developing I mean, telephone, telephonic banking, M-Pesa, how you can pay through your cell phone, originated out of Kenya and has spread across the continent. So, uh, you know, Kenya would be much less of a headache and we'll see, I think, faster growth rates than, than Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The reality, unfortunately, for Congo is that much of its economy is still revolving around extraction of commodities. So it's mining in particular, and that's why it's become so strategic for, um, for, for, for internationals, because there are things in, uh, in the Congo soil that are really important for industrial complexes, including those uh, looking for green transition, um, Colbert, Colton, Zentanium, and many other minerals. So what about the most basic strategy? The average household income in Burundi is around 280 US dollars a month. What if I were to travel to Burundi? and take my very theoretical billions of dollars and give every family in Burundi 1,000 US dollars, bypassing the government, bypassing the army, and bypassing any of the corruption. Every family now has 1,000 USD given to them by me. What impact would that have on the country? Look, there have been problems of when lots of money has been thrown at at an African country in terms of absorptive capacity and then how the money has been diverted for kind of particularly elite purposes. So it is about building up sustainable economies. So a lot of the conversation we've had between this today is giving money or providing a solution for one country. But is this an issue that can be solved one country at a time or is it something that we'd have to solve region-wide? There's no point making things better in Burundi if the infrastructure to get things to the ports just aren't there in Tanzania. Uh, I do think that some of the pan-African visions are the right one, including having a, a, a African free continental trade area, which would, you know, really, if it worked, would really unlock uh, economic growth in the continent uh, and reduce dependency. The, the thing is with Africa is that it decolonized in the 1950s and particularly the 1960s. So it's a, many of the states are very new. They're still going through state building process in episodes. And their economies were all designed for extraction for imperial projects. And so they are adapting at the moment. And this is where I do think the investments from, be they Gulf states or or China, India, Japan and others is really important. And so we'll be seeing a lot more of that in the African continent in coming years. The Africa story still, the winners at the moment in the continent are those that have commodities to export, but have a balanced economy where they are offering other things too, like like strong agricultural base and have a certain resilience to climate change. So those that don't have you know excessively erratic rainfall, uh, given how much of Africa's agricultural production is still you know rain fed reliant. 
the infrastructures still do follow a, a colonial imperial logic. It, it is beginning to change. And again, if you start breaking down the boundaries between countries, both at regional and continental level, there's a greater logic to this also. And the Chinese in particular have been looking about how to join up the, the bits so that they can kind of move things around. But it's still, in the end, about exporting to China, not what makes sense for Africa. And this is where African governments, but also the continental body, African Union, is going to need to be a lot more strategic. What are you know, pan-African strategic interests? What are regional interests and what are national interests? That's a tough ask. I mean, look at you know, the different ways that something like the European Union pulls often. But, but I think that's got to be the future for the African continent, which is kind of more common vision, both at regional, uh, continental, but also at national level. Building an economy is a tough thing, but building a long-lasting economy is even tougher. When it comes to economic policy, every measure isn't a light switch of off or on, it's a sliding scale. The higher you raise wages above the market rate, the less people your businesses are going to hire. But on the other hand, keep your wages artificially low, and you'll have more people employed, but they're all too broke to go out and buy any items. So the consumer demand drops, and most business owners make less money. Even on a nation-to-nation -nation scale, if you put money in to help the textile industry in Nigeria, well congrats, you've just given them an artificial advantage, meaning you've just hurt the textile industry in Ghana. You went in trying to help someone, and you did, but you also hurt someone at the same time. But even for countries setting mining licenses, it's a complicated balancing act. If a country was to lower their mining license fees and royalties and loosen regulations to attract foreign companies, yeah, they might come. And they might even start mines, but they're also likely to completely bypass your communities. And almost all of that money will end up in their pocket rather than in your community. But if you go the opposite way and raise license fees to bring more money to your people, the mining companies may do the math and deem it cheaper to either go elsewhere or bribe enough officials to overlook the fact you aren't paying your national license, or even fund a rebel army to come eject you from government offering to support the new dictator in exchange for lowering those license fees. Something that's happened a few times. Once again, I need to stress, I am not against foreign aid. In fact, I regularly advocate for foreign aid to be increased. But it's in the targeting that I want to see it being done better. The real way of fixing these situations is in building region-wide institutions. Building up judges and police and schools and national finance and government accountability. It's why the US Marshall Plan after World War II the plan to build up Europe after being devastated by the Second World War didn't just build up coal mines in the Rhineland. It actually built up national institutions, gave technology assistance and funding to all levels of government. And it's one of the main reasons these countries are as prosperous as they are today. But these are decade-long projects. And it took committed effort from the United States to do so. And looking around today, the big international players who have the money to fund these sort of things not many of them are thinking about long-term commitments. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. Most of you know how big an economics nerd I am, so doing episodes like this are always really fascinating for me. We did actually talk quite a lot about the DRC this week, the Democratic Republic of Congo, but there's a lot of issues we just didn't have time to cover. But fortunately, and if you haven't seen it yet, we actually did an entire episode on the Democratic Republic of Congo and its upcoming critical importance within the green tech supply chain 
as part four of our five-part mini-series focusing on the near-term security implications of climate change, the series being called The Green Line, with our DRC episode releasing last week. And if you want to check that out, it should be in the exact same feed you found this one, just one below. So if you somehow missed that one, or you want to keep up to date with everything we have going on at the moment, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz, Oz in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep the show going. And speaking of amazing Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Deanna J. Austin, who is the latest Patreon at time recording to sign up or increase their donation. This show is only possible because of the support of people like Diana. So if you feel you can spare a couple of dollars each month, we greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on foreign aid is all thanks to you, Diana. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Why Nations Fail by today's guest, Darren Moglu and his co-author, James Robinson. This was one of my favorite reads this year, and it really opened my eyes to the complexity of this issue. The second is Poor Economics by Ajib Banerjee for a look at the economic ways to fight poverty. And the third is Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Pinketty to better understand the underlying currents development economics. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Max Lawson, Darren Moglu, and Alex Vines. This lineup contains some of my favorite analysts and authors ever, so it was amazing to have them all on this piece. I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zavella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tano, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. It has been an absolutely amazing year working with these guys, and I'm looking forward to another one next year. The Green Line will be back next week with our fifth and final episode, and the Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.